Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Doesn't have to quack. I like that you kept that in there. Because <laughs> I was like, she was a shit. So <laughs> I think Nergedy wrote it, but I'm a, I'm I wrote say it. it. Lizzie oh, wrote it. So, yeah. Lizzie wrote it. Okay. Well, she was. She was. She's the shit. What's up? What's up? Welcome back to another episode of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field. One lady at a time. This season, we are discussing critics, theorists, and educators. On this week's episode, we will talk about Carol Johnson, a landscape architect behind many large-scale public projects and was an inspiring professor at Harvard GST. I'm Jessica Rogers, manifesting a beautiful flower garden like the one that Oprah has out of Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Lizzie and Nujiti. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rahr, manifesting a great night's sleep from San Francisco. Mm, yeah. And I'm Nurjiri Rivas, manifesting an apartment that makes Marie Kondo proud from Houston, Texas. <laughs> now for our disclaimer, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue to learn. All right, ladies. Today we begin our story on September 6, 1929, where Carol Roxanne Johnson was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Oh, hey! Shout out to Briggs Barnett, who shares a birthday with Carol. Yeah, hey. baby Briggs. Little baby cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Carol's mother, Edith Rosalie, was an educator and later became a principal at a school. And her father, Harrison Brimer, was a lawyer with his own practice. Did she have any siblings? Actually, now that you mention it, she did have one older brother named Clark, who started a neighborhood newsletter called the Boulevard Bugle. Carol and her friends would be reporters and deliver the newspaper. Isn't that cute? Yes, that's really, really cute. 
So cute. And I really like the name. It's catchy. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. So when her brother went to high school, Carol took over and ran the newsletter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she was able to increase the circulation to 400 recipients from the original 40. What? What? Yeah. Eventually, she would sell this newsletter to a local newspaper. Y'all, she must have still been like a kid. It's bananas. Yeah, what? This sounds like a legit operation now. I'm curious what kind of articles they would write about the neighborhood. Yeah, this sounds like it would be a super cute kid TV show. Speaking of kid TV shows, have you guys seen The Investigators? Mm-mm. <laughs> really? Sorry. Oh, no. yes. I haven't seen it. I've heard of it. Somebody recommended it to me and I have it on my list, but I've never actually watched it. I heard it's good, though. Yes, 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 yes. Put it on after we hang up. So, OK, it's this super. I mean, I can explain it, but we don't have to. We can move on. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's this super sweet Australian TV show about kids in school that investigate school mysteries like missing items or something bothering someone. It's a mockumentary. So I totally see how this could be the same thing with Carol running the Boulevard Bugle, the mockumentary series. I love it. That would be great. (laughs) I would totally watch that. (laughs) Yes, I I think there's probably a lot of similarities. Netflix, call us about the Boulevard Bugle. Yeah, there's a story there. All right. So besides this newsletter conglomerate slash newspaper business that she had uh, going on, Carol did have a pretty traditional childhood growing up. She was really into the outdoors, something that she got from her parents. They would visit Killington and Sherburne Valley in Vermont, for example. They would also visit places like the Gay Head Cliffs in Martha's Vineyards in Massachusetts. Oh, those are really pretty places. That sounds really nice. Yes. Okay. So fast forwarding, Carol ends up getting an English degree from Wellesley College in Massachusetts. Nice. Actually, the landscape design for Wellesley College's campus was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. You might remember we talked about his dad, Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. before in Mariana Van Rensselaer's episode. Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. designed Central Park, among other things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't remember that Freddie had a son that became a landscape designer, too. <laughs> <laughs> Were you keeping up on Freddie and his kids? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently not well enough. Clearly. <laughs> but I do remember that the Wellesley College campus is beautiful. Landscape design is very intentional, incorporating the surrounding landscape with the campus. You can see the natural landscape from almost every building, which adds to the identity of the college and the experience of the students. It goes to show how important landscape design is. Also, quick shout out to alumni and possible listener of the show, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, girl. <laughs> I had to. I mean, yeah. Everybody listens to She's our show. She's manifesting it. Yep. We're it's gonna happening. hashtag Hillary, okay? I'm gonna add her. Gonna add yes, her. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Do it. Um, well, 
Yes. So our homegirl Hillary went to Wellesley. Wellesley College is actually considered one of the most beautiful. It's like in the top 10 list of beautiful college campuses. Um, but yes, yeah, so that landscape there, Carol would later say, was probably one of her first experiences living in a well-designed landscape, which I believe may have planted the seeds for what would happen next. Oh, hey, Lizzie, do you see where this is going? You know I do. <laughs> uh. Well, we are getting ahead of ourselves because first... In 1951, Carol graduated, and right after graduation, her and a friend biked their way through Europe. They visited the beautiful landscapes of Versailles in France, Hampton Court in England, and the fields of Ireland. They also would camp and sleep in sleeping bags in the fields of Brussels. She really experienced the manicured landscapes of France and England but also experience the natural, untouched landscapes as well. That's so cool! I would love to do a Euro bike trip. And this actually reminds me of the cross-country road trip Nergidi and I took after college. We were trying to save monies, so we <laughs> camped, <laughs> or we stayed with people that we knew for the entire thing. But we got to see a lot both of natural landscapes and various cities across the U.S., just like Carol. Yeah, I would love to do that again, really. And this also sounds like another movie that could be done about Carol, like The Bicycle Diaries. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if a lot of ladies were doing bicycle road trips in the early 1950s. This sounds kind of uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that she did it. Yeah. Get it, Carol? <laughs> get it Carol well for Carol in particular I think this might have been an exploratory time for her because when she returned back to the states Carol worked at a wax museum as a tour guide she later would work at a really old business in Massachusetts called New England Nurseries there she would live in a shack on the grounds and live in the landscape of it all talk about commitment to the work Mm -hmm. There she met a whole bunch of landscape architecture students from Harvard. Actually, some of those students included people like John Frey, Pat Manhart, and Eric Desty. For a second there, I thought I heard you say Patrick Dempsey, and I thought, what is Meg Dreamy doing here? <laughs> oh, you didn't know? He does like the woods. But anyway, um, sure, Nordry McDreamy. Um Anyway, actually, it was this group of people that would encourage Carol to join the field of landscape architecture and encouraged her to apply to the landscape architecture program at Harvard. I love the peer mentoring happening here. Yeah, me too. Yes. So while at Harvard, Carol was learning from some very notable people like Hideo Sasaki, Norman Newton and Walter Chambers. Ooh, I've heard those names, especially Hideo Sasaki. That's one cool dude. He studied landscape architecture at the University of Illinois, and he graduated from Harvard's GSD when Gropius was the dean. His firm, Sasaki Walker & Associates, is a leader in complex environmental design, how buildings and the greater environment meet. Isn't that cool? And mm -hmm. I recommend looking up Greenacre Park in New York City. 
and Constitution Plaza, Connecticut. Those both are really nice projects. Ooh, yeah. But we deviate from Carol. Yes. Yes, back to Carol. So although she went in not knowing a lot about landscape architecture, she would say that at her time there, that her professors would give her time and attention and really helped her gain confidence in understanding design. That's so great. I'm glad that they weren't shunning her for being a woman and that they were being helpful. Yeah, I'm so happy and surprised of all the encouragement and support she was receiving. Yeah, I mean, so Carol, she really credits one of the main mentors that she had, a person that she learned from a a lot, which was the Siegfried Gideon. You know, that dude that wrote Space, Time and Architecture. Oh, yeah, that's the guy that Hans Schroeder studied under and helped him when he was writing that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, Jane Drew humble bragged about having breakfast with him while she was teaching at MIT, remember? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, that book is pretty influential. We read it in school. In short, it's a history of modern architecture and urban planning. Yeah. So learning from Siegfried, she was really able to learn about urban design, which can be a very critical component in landscape design. I bet. Yeah. So at Harvard, she also learned about the collaborative design process, as well as how to design environmentally sensitive landscapes. Learning all the important things. Yep. So while attending Harvard, she would also get some work experience by working with the Bucks County Park Board in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. She would also spend time working at engineering and planning firms in Boston. Sounds like she was making good connections and getting good experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that she was exposing herself and learning from diverse environments. Yep. Okay, so Carol ends up graduating from Harvard in 1957. And in September 1958, she ends up working at the Architects Collective, known as TAC, a renowned architectural practice founded by Walter Gropius, based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was actually one of the first landscape architects to join this firm. Color me impressed. Wow. (laughs) Okay, I know we've mentioned Walter Gropius before, but a little more background on him. He actually founded the Bauhaus School in Germany and was an early modernist architect. He eventually left Germany and came to Massachusetts, where he ran the Harvard GSD and had a big career here in the States. Yes. Okay. so working at TSC was actually short lived because she was only there for a year. How come? Okay, so, of course, Carol was very talented, but I don't think she was treated very well. In my research, a Washington Post editor used this quote to compare what her experience was like when Carol was hired. I hired you to look at. It never occurred to me or to anyone else that you had a brain in your head. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Well, we know what it means. Well, yeah, but I can't believe it. I know. That's horrible. That's worse than what Julia Morgan's boss said about being able to pay her less as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. so to be clear, though, an editor said this to a reporter. They didn't directly say this to Carol, but these sentiments were similar to what other people saw Carol while she worked at the TAC. Still. Here, I was so excited about all the support she was receiving from her peers, her professors, her colleagues, and then this. Yeah. Nosedive. Yeah. Well, actually, it was 
the rest of her colleagues that encouraged her to leave so that she could start her own firm. Good. Now, so a little bit of context. So does that mean that Gropius was the one who was being such a... I I am not saying those things. (laughs) (laughs) Cannot confirm nor deny. Listeners jump to conclusions. Yeah, I'll let the the listeners jump to their own conclusions. But I will say this also in my research. What I have found is that having your own landscape architecture firm, it was still like a very new thing. Uh. So not only was she like a pretty person with brains, I don't think being in an architecture firm as a landscape architect. Sure. Like there, it wasn't like a high priority. She was also one of the firsts, you know, Mm -hmm. but. Anyway, in 1959, Carol R. Johnson, Inc. firm started. Later, it would become Carol R. Johnson and Associates, Inc. And it all started with just a drafting table in Carol's Carybridge apartment. Yeah! Get it, Carol? Start your own thing. Okay, I'm glad that we're back to supportive people and that she got out of that toxic environment and showed them just how big of a brain she had in her head. <laughs> and I really hope that she took some clients with her, too. Girl can dream. A girl can dream. So between Carol's connection from Harvard, she did get to work on a lot of cult projects, but it wasn't always easy. OK, so are y'all ready for some BS? More so than what we just heard. Yeah, what? Yeah. You know it, because although we are in season four, our ladies are still ladies in this male-dominated industry. Ugh, I guess so. Hit us. Okay, why don't we just start with how most of the male contractors didn't want to work with her, or that potential male employees just didn't want to work with a woman. So much so that Carol would have to hire sculptors and artists instead. So obnoxious. This reminds me of Minette de Silva season two. She went through the same struggles. Yeah. And next, let's go with how people just didn't want to hire a woman to work on a project. Why, Lord, why? Okay, so let me share a story of one of Carol's earlier projects that she wanted to work on, which was the Cambridge Commons. So Carol thought that if she brought two male employees she would be able to win the bid for this project. So, uh, yeah, she still didn't win the bid. And a member of the selection committee literally told her afterwards, we gave it to two good men instead of one good woman. (gasps) No puedo, no puedo, me muero, me muero. I know. There's a big eye roll happening over here. That's just (laughs) so maddening. And... The fact that he even said something to her face. I think that's always the thing that gets me is the gall or the privilege of these men to feel like it's okay for them to say stuff like that directly (laughs) to the woman. Like, what? Whole other other level of audacity. Yeah, it really is. Like, a whole other level. Oy, oy, oy. Yeah, so for the rest of her career... Carol had to fight against this type of misogynistic way of thinking. But anyway, the joke's on them because she was still able to build one of the largest landscape architecture firms in the country. But but we are we're getting ahead of ourselves in their faces. Yeah, I can't wait. Keep going, Jessica. So although she struggled at the beginning of her career, 
she was still able to land her first foreign project, which was the landscape associated with the U.S. Pavilion at the World's Fair Montreal's Expo in 1967, where she collaborated with Buckminster Fuller and Cambridge Seven Associates. Whoa, that's a big deal. We actually all went to that project when we visited Montreal in school. Heck yeah, I remember that was a crazy day. It was so cold. Oh, yeah. February in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but we still made time to go to see us some Bucky. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're actually, we're going to post those photos. Are we posting that on the yeah. show notes so that I can yeah, see it? Because I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't know if we'll do the show notes, but we'll definitely put it on social media. Yeah, social media. We'll, social media. Sorry. Sorry. we'll social do media. it all. We'll do it all. Well, Carol was responsible for the surrounding trees. In that complex, which oh. if I would have known, I would have paid more attention to the trees, too, instead of like the domes, because they were strategically placed there. I didn't know. Oh. But she said that her method to find some mature trees was barnstorming. Hmm? OK, new term. What's that? So basically, <laughs> that means that she basically went all around Canada via a small airplane looking for trees, looking at them from the air. So when she saw trees that she liked, they would land the plane and buy these trees outright from the farmers and landowners. Say what? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a fun day at the office, but I have a lot of follow up questions. Heck yeah, yep. there's a lot of questions. Like, first of all, to me, that sounds so bougie. Like, <laughs> what kind of time and money do you need to have to just be chilling on an airplane? And then you get to get there and you just throw money at people and they're like, sure, take my trees. Like, what? <laughs> yes. And like, but how do they transport the trees back? Mm -hmm. Aren't they like way out there? Isn't that the point of going to the find the finest specimens? Do they strap it to the plane? I mean, we're talking about a fully mature tree. So you got to get the full root ball and all of that with the tree. Like, how are they doing this? OK, mm -hmm. we're going to need landscape architects and GCs listening to holla back at us and give us the means and methods for this project, the Gantt chart, the critical path. Yes, I need to know. <laughs> I need to know all the things. Yeah. But like you said, Lizzie, this sounds like a really fun day at the office. I just see her riding around on the helicopter <laughs> with wine in one hand and pointing to her chosen trees with the other. Yes. How can I sign up to Barnstorm? Mm -hmm. Is this a thing? And we just don't know? I don't like, know. Do we hashtag barnstorming and found, find like 100,000 posts on Instagram? I sure hope so. If not, we need to make it happen. Let's start a trend. But anyway, Jessica, <laughs> take us back to Carol because we could barnstorm all day. <laughs> like, all day barnstorm, <laughs> for sure. What a life. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, she did have other exciting projects, maybe not to the barnstorming uh, I love equivalent. That. I Lizzie can't get and I over just... the barnstorming. Like, I just... What did she do after barnstorming, yes. though? Yes, barnstorming. So, okay, back to the States, back to America. <laughs> uh, Carol's project started to pick up. She started to work on some other cool things, like the Chevron oil refinery in Perth, Amboy, New Jersey. The Finger Lakes region of upstate New York what, what, in 1981. She was doing some site reclamation for the Bell Station on Lake Cayuga. 
um, actually, a lot of her projects were very large scale public projects that required some sort of environmental remediation. That's cool that she worked on such big and important projects. Mm hmm. Yeah, though nothing is going to be quite the same after that barnstorming commotion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. Well, okay. So I want all of my Boston or Massachusetts folks to like chime in here because one of her well-known projects included a nature preserve called the Mystic River State Reservation in eastern Massachusetts. Now here, Carol basically had to transform a toxic landfill into a public park. Whoa. Okay. What would that be called? Hashtag toxic storming or like <laughs> project landfill. <laughs> oh, that's a good show. I would watch that show. Landfill makeover. Yes. <laughs> that should be on HGTV. Yeah. Let's mm-hmm. put some of that like landfill takeover. Takeover. <laughs> well, anyway. Some of her other more famous projects was the John F. Kennedy Park along the Charles River. This park was previously described as an oil-soaked storage site for train cars. This project was actually completed on what would have been the president's 70th birthday. See you guys, Brown Site Makeovers. It's a totally doable show. I'd watch Let's that. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you were to visit this park, Today, you would see that at the center of the park is this granite fountain with water spilling over its sides, which was inspired by streams in New England. I like how she brings context in her projects. Oh, yeah. Carol's practice was based on principles of traditional values that were dedicated public services. She insisted on quality design and construction. She even prioritized educating future practitioners about the social value of good design. Passing on her knowledge. That's important. Yep. Okay, so that project that I mentioned a little earlier, the Mystic Reservation project, for example, Carol, she would have to design whole new soil mixes and drainage techniques to solve problems posed by toxic soils. Cool. Carol, the scientist over here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can go on with her projects and listeners. Okay, so another project that I want to mention, especially for those people that are based out of the Boston area, um, you will definitely have to check out our show notes to learn more about some of the specific project called The Big Dig. Whoa, really? That's really cool. The Big Dig was the central artery or tunnel project that rerouted Interstate 93, the main highway that was running through downtown Boston, into a tunnel. And it included major road bridges and a linear park through several downtown neighborhoods, including gardens, promenades, plazas, fountains, art, and special lighting. Ooh. Yep. And in theory, that project sounded nice, but it presented a lot of problems and obstacles. It wasn't any fault of Carol's, but for a project that big, a lot of things can go wrong. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the project turned out really nicely and that these types of infrastructure projects can result in really great public spaces. But it had a lot of controversy around it, and it is considered to be one of the most expensive highway projects in the U.S. It was over budget by 190 percent. Oh, snap. Yeah. Yeah. And the project Mm -hmm. was also 
nine years late. And there were also casualties on site. I mean, it was kind of a hot mess. Projects like that usually are, right? I mean, remember what Robert Moses did to New York? Some of it resulted in nicer spaces, but at a cost. I mean, a lot of money, displaced people, you know, little things like that. But actually, comparing Carol to Robert is not fair. In fact, Carol was looking to fix the type of infrastructure that Robert was advocating for. Right, Lizzie? Yeah, I think when we did that episode on Jane Jacobs and talked about Robert Moses, I was the one asking, why don't they just build a tunnel? Which is essentially what they did here. And they were kind of, quote unquote, fixing the type of design that I think Robert Moses had argued for, which was freeways, car centered design going through the center of cities. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute, Jessica. We've been having really great discussions and I'm so happy you brought up barnstorming into my life. But... (laughs) Where is the academia or critic or theory talk? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so her projects just sounded so interesting, and I really, I really could go on and on. But yes, okay, let's tie her back to the theme of the season. Okay, while Carol is working on all of these awesome projects, between 1966 to 1973, Carol was also teaching at her alma mater, Harvard GSD, you know, the Graduate School of Design. Was she there at the same time as Poop Face Gropius? <laughs> Did she have a chance to spit in his food in the teacher's lounge? If only. <laughs> but I think he retired in like 1952. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a bummer. But actually, good for her. I wouldn't want to be teaching alongside someone that did me so wrong like that. But also, before we move on, I just want to share that I would never spit in someone's food as retaliation for anything. <laughs> But I would fart in their general direction if necessary. So watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to get on your bad side. You know, they're stinky. Um, watch out, people. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing, too, we have to remember that Gropius was in the architecture department and Carol taught in the planning department. Planning sure, and but maybe, I mean, if they were teaching at the same time, they would have yeah, run into each other. Exactly. True. True. But I'm hoping that they, I mean... They maybe there were other, yeah, yeah. They would have kept and it maybe civil. Maybe there were, you know, that's yeah, true. They would have kept true. it civil. So she, Carol, also taught and lectured at architecture schools in Taiwan. Oh. So those are other cool. things. Um, you know, students they would say that Carol was the <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's actually a quote from one of her students: "For so many women in this profession." Carol Johnson was a guiding light, an example of the kind of vision and grit needed to lead in a man's world, an early model for a practice built on excellence and work-life balance, and an elegant thinker and doer. Her work places her among the greats. The context of her work makes it nothing short of miraculous. Wow, how wonderful of her students to think of her like that. That's really, really inspiring. I love the role model that she was then and is now for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a sweet quote. I can tell that she really made an impact on the students. Carol was also a trustee for the Hubbard Education Trust, now called the Hubbard Educational Foundation. This group would seek to support education in landscape architecture across the United States. Love that she was involved with supporting education beyond just her teaching career. Me too. There's a lot of love going on today for Carol. Love, love, love. (laughs) 
Love, love, love. Carol was great. She was just great. Her once teeny tiny firm composed of artists and sculptors because the other men didn't want to work with her. It ended up growing and expanding. In 1982, Carol would even become a fellow at the American Society of Landscape Architects. In 1998, she was the first woman to receive the ALSA medal, which is a very prestigious award, by the way architects out there, you may think of it as the landscape architects version of the AIA's gold medal award or their Pulitzer Prize in Europe. Well deserved. Finger snaps. Yeah. All right, ladies. So in June 2016, Carol officially retired. Whoa, that's so recent. It sounds like she had a long and wonderful career. Seriously. So what did she do in retirement? Does she play bingo? <laughs> we all know what you're going to do. Yeah, we, that's that's nurturies. I'm looking for another lady. Then. <laughs> well, looking for a friend. Yeah, looking for a friend. Well, she would do what we probably would do, I think, besides play bingo and knit and quote. Um, because from and what I do tomato know. Plants. Anyway, um, what I do know is that Carol did travel quite often and she would go on hikes. Um, It was said that she had gone rafting down the Amazon. One of her last trips was a climb in Tibet. So I couldn't quite find those exact dates of these excursions, but I like to think that that's what she did during her retirement years. Yes, this is my kind of retirement. I would love to travel like that. Also, rafting down the Amazon sounds real cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's more fun than bingo. You know, they're both fun in their own way. <laughs> you got to do something on the plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jessica, what about marriage, kids? Did she have time for any of that in her life? Okay, so she did have a husband by the name of John V. Worm, an engineer who had passed away in 1993. Um, she didn't have any kids, but she did have a couple of nieces and nephews whom she would bring along her adventures. One of her nieces Jenna Johnson, who also became a landscape architect and who even worked for her for a little bit, said that Carol does some things that today we would think are very on trend, like she would grind her own coffee beans at home. She would meal prep with produce that she would grow from her own garden. (laughs) I love it. Carol was such a trendsetter. Oh, yeah, for sure. And she was able to grow her own produce. Oh, <laughs> bringing it back. Can't even. Yeah, sorry. Just oh, damn tomatoes. Okay. <laughs> so Carol, she ended up passing away due to Alzheimer's complications in her house in May. On December 11th, 2020, Carol was 91 years old. It's so recent. But I'm glad that she lived such a long life and was able to do so much. Yeah. OMG, that was like yesterday. Right? We lived among a legend and we didn't even know it, you guys. Uh. Oh, yeah, for sure. It And it seems so recent because it was. It, exactly. Yeah. It was <laughs> Doesn't literally seem that way. Like, it literally it was. Is. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not like five years ago, two years ago. <laughs> it was last year, like less than less than 10 a year. months. Less than a year. Um, so Carol did write an autobiography, which we'll, we will link it in our show notes. 
But in this book, Carol writes her rules of thumb that guided her career. And during her memorial service, her niece shared them, and we will share them with you guys right now. And ladies, y'all will help me. But I'll start. Number one, it's better to do something simply than to overcomplicate the design. Number two, never do anything totally arbitrary. Find a general reasoning for every choice of form, material, or course of action. A good design based on good reasoning will be more creative and communicative than one without reason. Three, never substitute methodology for original thought. Four, never delay thinking during an information gathering or analysis phase. Five, search for the details and the grand vision simultaneously. Six, never assume that using high quality materials makes a good design. Hmm. I've got to remember that one too. Seven, no detail is too small to attend to. God is in the details. Amen. (laughs) Eight, be a good listener. Think and evaluate as you listen. Nine, search out and improve law spaces. Ten, heal the land. Eleven, design with an ongoing maintenance plan in mind. Oh, yeah. Twelve, look at all imaginable options even if at first you don't like some of them. 13. Always pay attention to the design of the ground form. Sometimes the flattest places are the most difficult. 14. Search out the best collaborators for a design team. Artists, architects, engineers, ecologists, biologists, arborists. 15. Work with the community. And 16. Maximize the sense of the natural environment and the seasons and cultural landscape at the same time. Emphasize the unique resources of both. Can we put that in a poster? Sure. Like all those? I mean, yeah. Those are so good. They're really good. Some of them are like hella deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know she probably meant like a career, but I think it was life. But All right. That was wonderful, ladies. Thank you. All right. So now we have reached the second half of the episode, our karyatid. So, Nordri, can you remind us what a karyatid is? A karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Lovely. So... This week's karyatid goes to barnstorming. Gina Ford! Gina! All right. So Gina Ford is a landscape architect, principal, and co-founder of the Boston-based architecture firm Agency Landscape and Planning. She also teaches... And was a Harvard GSD grad as well. Just like Carol. Yeah. So Gina herself has also won several awards, which reminded me of Carol. Well, actually, Gina would probably say that her successes are because of Carol. Because Gina was actually a student of Carol's at Harvard GSD. That quote that I mentioned earlier of Carol being the guiding light. That came from Gina. Okay. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Carol really made an impact, and folks like Gina are carrying the torch after her. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. There is a lot of possible characters that I could have chosen. And what's interesting is that a lot of the characters that I found, they were all kind of influenced by Carol in some way. So that's cute. I love it. All right. So before we sign off, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Carol and Gina, (laughs) along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your students, your professors, your landscape architects. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This all helps us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. Yes, we are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, SheBuildsPodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. So let's be like a tree and leave. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because from what I do know, and grow Try to grow tomato plants. <laughs> so sorry to bring up a sore subject. Oh, Ooh. sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's too close. <laughs> too soon. It's still, too soon. It's too <laughs> fresh. It's still fresh. I had to buy tomatoes today. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was really hoping that tomato plant would come through. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys.
Oh my one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.